Welcome to Retirement Straight Talk with Paul and William, featuring award-winning financial advisor and former host of the Sunday Money Show, News Talk 1010, Paul Baraka and his associate advisor, William Baraka. Creating and keeping wealth does not need to be complicated. Paul and William will cut through confusing and contradictory financial advice to give you the real facts to help you invest better and enjoy a worry-free retirement. The views and opinions expressed in this video may not necessarily reflect those of IPC Securities Corporation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. What are your three biggest financial concerns? The most important financial issues that you think about fairly regularly and maybe even worry about on a regular basis. Now, to deal with these concerns, we need to ask ourselves first, are these actual concerns or as human beings, are we creating them or magnifying them to a degree which may even be hindering our financial well-being? Psychologist and behavioral financial expert, Dr. Daniel Crosby says that when we get stressed, And what causes a stress, except when we see our portfolio drop, we lose as people up to 19 IQ points. Wow, that's a lot. At the time when we need to be thinking most rationally, we have the least amount of rational intelligence. Now, sometimes these concerns are real, but sometimes they're really just the result of being confused or having a lack of information. Perhaps our past experience is clouding our thinking. Or perhaps it's the onslaught of contradictory and sometimes downright false advice we hear in the media. I mean, who wouldn't be confused after hearing six different contradictory uh, solutions to deal with a financial problem? Welcome to today's episode of Retirement Straight Talk with Paul and William. We're here to discuss today 10 of the most concerning issues that we tend to talk with our clients about all the time. The things that either they bring up or we feel need being addressed. And again, I'm here with my associate advisor, certified financial planner, William Pareka, and this is episode number 37. By the way, you know, the answers to these problems, they're rarely black and white. Each person comes from a different background. Some people um, came up under similar financial circumstances. Some people grew up under scarcity. Some people grew up under abundance. It's, and it's also based on your past experience. Here's one, some things that we've heard about a lot. Where we hear someone say, I knew this person who lost money. And virtually every time we explored to, into that, it was always someone who bought an investment maybe 10 years ago owned it for a short period of time, maybe six months, saw it go down, and then sold it. Here are the 10 most frequent conversations that we have with our clients. And William, I think we agree on the first one, by far, probably the most, uh, the biggest issue that clients bring up. And that is simply, do I have enough? Do I have enough to retire? Do I have enough to do whatever I want to do in life? Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. And like you said in the intro there, um, it's never a black and white answer because everyone's different. And that's why um, 
I mean, in answering this question, uh, there's different heuristics or rules of thumb out there that people commonly use or refer to. Um, the 4% rule is a fairly common yeah, one. Yeah. And we always tell our clients when we have these discussions, um, you shouldn't rule run your financial lives by rules of thumb because, again, like you said, everyone's different and there's so many different variables in each individual situation whether it's your marital status where you live your taxation um do you have a private pension plan do you have an inheritance on the way so everyone there's so many different variables that come into play you can't just look at one rule of thumb and say this is what i'm going to base my retirement income off of and And people are People are different, different ways. Don't we meet with clients who have way more than enough to retire and they're still worried about it? And others who are maybe we do their financial plan and it's kind of on the borderline and they're not concerned at all. They just want to live life for today. So like you say, everyone is different. And that's why the importance of having a personalized um, retirement income plan to help answer this question. So first we sit down with our clients and ask and work through with them. um, How much annually do you need in retirement to live on, Mm -hmm. to live comfortably on? Um, Do you have any other goals? So do you want to help fund a grandkid's education? Do you want to buy a vacation home? Do you want to help your kids with a down payment um, on their own home. This is all those things we work through with our clients. Um, and this goes hand in hand with just a thorough analysis of what you already have now. What are your debts? What's your cash flow look like? When do you want to retire? That's a very important question at all as well. So we, we work through that and help give our clients um, the clarity and a plan that they can always reference on that question. And it's not a one-time event. We're always looking back or every few years or has required by a big new event, like a, a promotion or, or a Things job always change. on the other hand. Things always change. Things always um, change. So this is why we we update this uh, every so often as needed. So, so our clients always have a clear goal in terms of where they're going, where they're at in relation to the plan and making sure they're on track. Yeah, and a lot of times clients haven't thought about these things, right? Well, I mean, we've gone through retirement analysis and the client said, okay, I need X dollars a month. And then we start into the plan, we start sending the money and they go, oh, I'd like another 20, 30,000. And we decide to take this big trip or I want to give an extra $50,000 to my my, uh, son to help them with their due time. Those are things you got to think about ahead of time, build them into the plan. Otherwise, the plan doesn't have too much value. Okay, so yeah, the next big question we ask or we answer, Paul, for clients is, should I invest in real estate or should I invest in more traditional, not traditional, but assets like stocks and bonds? Yeah, and that's, boy, this comes up all the time. And the thing I find people get wrong all the time is they think they're comparing apples to apples and they're comparing apples to banana peels, really. They are completely different types of investment. And one may be right or wrong for you, for everyone out there. Nothing is perfect. So for example, real estate is something that requires work and time. Investing in the markets really doesn't. We can buy, like we buy just index accounts for clients. Not a lot of work to do there. You buy a piece of property, of course, there's a lot of work initially to get the property there, to buy it, deal with the real estate people, fix the house out, deal with the city, pay all this stuff. And then, of course, 
if you rent it, well, now you got to deal with tenants, repairs, and, and stuff like this. It's completely different investment. That's one aspect. The second is real estate is not liquid. If you need the money, you can't get it. Mind you, you could often create a line of credit against the home and borrow against it, but you can't get your original money out except for that way. And the other, well, the other one, hugely, hugely misunderstood is real estate is generally levered. Now, whereas uh, investing in the markets is not. And again, we're not saying one is better than the other because when markets do well, when you lever your investments, you can do extremely well. But when things don't work out well, it can really hurt your pocketbook. For example, people who bought houses about a year and a half ago, I guess what, March or so in 2022, at the height of the market, with some of those people you read about them in their newspaper now, they've lost virtually all of their deposit, everything, because the value of what they bought has dropped. So again, different, they're different situations. One isn't better than the other. They're different. I mean, some people love uh, fixing up a property. They love going around and fixing toilets and that others don't. Yeah, I think the the key here, Paul, is what we're not trying to criticize real estate investing. Because not at all. A lot of people have done very well with it. Um, but what's right for one person isn't necessarily right for another. And I think like, like you've been going on, there are some some aspects of real estate investing that the average person doesn't always consider before they get into it. Um, so just important to be aware of all of those considerations. Um, yeah. A big one I like to go over with clients is the diversification aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Like you referenced earlier, you can buy, if you're investing in stocks and bonds, you can buy um, an ETF or a mutual fund, just one solution that's globally diversified throughout the world in different asset classes. So that's very diversified, very risk averse. Versus, And by you, the way, that can include real estate. You can yes. own real estate companies, you can own REITs directly. And, and real estate investment trusts. Yeah. Versus if you buy, um, you know, a rental condo in Toronto or whatever the area is, uh, you're not diversified at all in that you're you're just heavily concentrated in one asset class in one very specific part of the world. So that's something to keep in mind, in particular as well on the diversification side. If you already own uh, a principal residence, that's likely already your biggest financial asset. So then if you're talking about adding another rental property on, onto that, again, you're just very concentrated in one asset class. And then just the last thing I want to go over uh, before we move on from this topic is the performance aspect of it. I think the last decade in Toronto, Paul, has kind of clouded a lot oh. of people's judgments where, again, real estate's done People's really done well. Great. People have really done great. Well. The market's gone crazy. But that's not the norm. If you look historically, I mean, RBC did an analysis from 1997 until the start of 2023. Toronto real estate has actually underperformed the Toronto Stock Exchange um, in that time period. So the last decade or so of crazy real estate, that's not the norm. I wouldn't expect that going forward. Um, so again, that's just something to be aware of. Uh, again, you got to take leverage into the account. I did an analysis one time a couple of years ago comparing, uh, according to the Toronto Real Estate Board, the average price increase in real estate in Toronto versus the S&P 500. And over that 10-year period, the S&P 500 actually outperformed. Yeah. Again, many other things to think about. So just, let's move 
Before we move on, we covered this topic a lot more in depth in episode 27. If anyone wants to go back, if they missed that episode, we talk a lot more about the differences between stocks and uh, and real estate investing there. Ray, you, I'm impressed with you. Remember that. Good for you. Good for you. Okay. Let's go on to point number three of the 10 things we tend to talk with our clients most. And, and this is a good one. People come up and we'll do our regular review, right, William? And a few clients, not that many, because our clients overall are excellent clients. But some of them, they say, well, why did my account go down this year? Or why did it, they pick some spot, why did it go down between this time and that time? Maybe a six-month period or nine-month period. And, of course, the, the, what we often respond is, why are you asking? This is normal. I mean, when we sit down with clients initially, we we talk about, we go through questionnaires and we make sure we're clear. We know that these things go up and down. That's normal. But however, we're all human beings. When we don't like to see when our accounts go down, it does, it is, it can be stressful for us. And that's when people ask what happens. And the answer, what what we're going to most say is, well, this is normal. This is part of how it works. Uh, we buy, as you know, we, we buy mostly index accounts because they're low price and they tend to overperform in the long run. They're going to go up and down. That's yeah. normal. That's just the cost of being in the market. Like I always like to yes. say, there, there's no free lunch in investing. Um, so stocks and bonds typically, or not typically, historically, they have a higher expected rate of return than a risk-free asset, like a GIC or something like that. In the longer um, term, yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a reason for that. The price you pay is the volatility. I'd love to earn the good stock market returns with no volatility, but that, that's not out there, unfortunately. And, and we'd probably be out of business. And, and a lot of it comes back to what's your objective? I mean, if your money, if your objective is short term, you shouldn't be investing anyway. If, it, if you need that money in the next year or two, that money should not be invested anyway. It should be in a short term a GIC or something like this. Well, that leads that, perfectly, Paul, into our next uh, yes. next question that we answer a lot from clients. And this is very timely now. Yes. Um, they're looking at high interest savings accounts where you can earn 5% and GICs around the same rate. Um, and we're getting a lot of questions. I can get this pretty good sounding risk-free rate. Why, why shouldn't I invest my money in there? And we're going to, again, it's a very uh, uh, in-depth topic. There's a lot of nuances around it. We covered this again back on episode six. If you missed that and want to go back and check that out. Um, But just for today, Paul, I know you like to say cash, it feels good, right? You make that analogy a lot. Um, Instant gratification. It's instant gratification. It feels good right now. Now, will it feel good in three or four or five years? Well, that's the thing. And if it's long-term money. Right. That's the thing. So if you're talking again about repurposing your long term investments to these GI, these short term accounts, GICs, high interest savings funds, um, it's very risky. Cash is as a long term investment. Um, And the reason for that is um, it's much more historically likely cash or GICs to lose purchasing power versus stocks or bonds. Great point. Great point. And that's what you should be concerned about with your long-term money. Again, even if you're, some people say some, we, a lot, a lot of 
a big thing we get from clients, Paul, is I'm 60 years old. I should probably start de-risking my portfolio. I'm retired. I can't deal with the volatility anymore. Yes. Very well, good point. even if you're 60 years old, you still, let's let's say you need to plan to live to 90. We, we run most of our retirement plans to assume people live to 100 just to be very conservative because people are living more yeah. uh, more uh, longer nowadays. But let's say you have a life expectancy <laughs> to 90. So even if you're 60, you still need 30 years sure. to, to have your money uh, not lose power to inflation. So if you're talking about moving your long-term savings to GICs, you're basically trading one risk for another, which is um, the short-term volatility that comes with being in the market versus the long-term risk, which is for, again, long-term savings more important, the long-term risk of you either running out of money or you having drastically lower purchasing power with your money as you get into retirement than you do now. Well, that's correct. I mean, William, what I say when people comes in, I says, well, you know, we can start getting very more conservative, putting more of your money in these guaranteed investments, but then we might not have to reflect that in your retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Instead of assuming, oh, uh, five and a half or six percent, maybe we have to assume five or four and a half. Well, that's going to affect how much money you can draw out every year from your portfolio. Yeah. And now, if you're fine with that, great. If you have enough money that you can de risk a bit, and still uh, um, uh, have lots of money in terms of income, that's perfectly fine. As long as you're aware of it. As long as you're aware, again, as William said, you're gonna, if it's a non-registered account, you're gonna lose a good chunk of any interest payment to taxes, 40 to 50%, anyone in a middle or upper or higher tax bracket. Uh, you could also lose liquidity. Again, if you lock your money away for the best five-year rate, well, that money's locked away, can't have it. Now you can buy cashable, GICs, but they're at a lower interest rate. So what's important to you? The liquidity. And um, so again, it really depends. What is your objective? Is it short-term objective or is it long-term objective? Ask yourself that simple question. That will often give you the right answer. And Paul, another thing I'm often hearing on this topic is clients understand that. They know long-term, but they, they might say, oh, why, why don't I just get this 5% rate now? And then whenever the rates start to go down, then I'll, I'll get back into the markets. Then I'll reinvest in stocks and bonds. And there's a few, and that's very tempting. And I can see why that would make sense. But there, there's a few problems with it. Number one, the expected return on stocks and bonds actually goes up at higher levels of interest rates. So you're historically going to lose out on that higher return from stocks and bonds. Um, and the other thing too is when those rates go down, the interest rates go down, that's typically very good for stocks and bonds. Lower interest rates typically yeah. are better for stocks. And when interest rates go down as well, that's also better for your bond uh, capital gains um, because bond prices go up when interest rates go down. So you're going to miss out on that when that happens. And then just lastly on it, it's also very psychologically hard, I find, for people to move in from cash to investments because you have the security of cash. And moving into something that's more volatile, like the market, can be psychologically hard, even even if we know mentally it's the right thing to do. So that's th- those are some challenges with saying I'll, I'll just yeah. wait until the the GIC rates fall and then get back into the market. Yeah, that's 
Uh, we're uh, skipping two of our issues here. That's what we're going to talk about, two issues from today. Let's move on to the next one, and then we'll get into that later. Next one is, should I invest in an RRSP or a TFSA? Hey, we get this question all the time. Yeah. And like we really, sorry, Paul, like, like we've been saying all along, it depends person to person. There's no black or white answer to this question. It really depends on your personal situation, but go, go on, Paul. Yeah. It also depends on your marginal tax bracket. I mean, assuming you're still earning an income and you're earning a good income and you're up in the 40% plus tax bracket, it probably makes most sense to put money in the RSP because you're going to get a big chunk of money back. And we always suggest if you have a mortgage, well, take that tax saving and maybe put it towards your non-deductible mortgage. You're kind of doing two things at once. And boy, can that accelerate your your wealth and your net worth pretty quickly. Uh, If you're in a lower tax bracket, probably makes more sense to put it in the TFSA, max that out. Again, and it depends on, again, in retirement, is your marginal tax bracket in your retirement plan, are you projecting it to be higher Mm-hmm. about the same or lower than where you are right now. Now, if it's going to be lower, then definitely use the RSP because you're going to be saving maybe uh, $50 in tax today and only paying back 30 when you retire. Well, that's a pretty good deal. A uh, few people, they're, maybe they're going to sell a business. Maybe they think their uh, retirement uh, marginal tax bracket may be higher. Well, in that case, Maybe it doesn't make sense to put in the RSP. Again, yeah. if you're anticipating around the same, then they, one they or work the other. out to be about the same in, in the end. Work. Yeah. In, so in again, a nutshell, I think if, if you're a high income earner and you can afford to max out both of them, that's usually the best solution. Bingo. Um, but most people aren't in that situation. Most people have to choose one or the other. So these are some of the things you have to consider when deciding between the two accounts. Um, an, another another consideration is for low income uh, Canadians, Paul, RSPs typically aren't advantageous just because um, income you have to withdraw from an RSP, they affect government um, benefits like yes. guaranteed income supplement and things of that nature. So if you're forced to take out money from an RSP, that might take away uh, your GIS from or other, other benefits. benefits. Good point. Versus a TFSA withdrawals aren't considered income, so that, that wouldn't affect anything like that. Um, just one more consideration I want to go over is um, if you're married, if you're over the age of 65, any income you take out of your RIF, you can split with your with your, your spouse as pension income. So that's another factor that comes into play when deciding between the, the two Good. accounts. And that's the key where planning comes in. Uh, you know, doing the planning, the, the programs that we use, we can we take all of that into account. Yeah, so that's what you need to do to make a proper decision. Now, the next point, number six of the ten things we talk about uh, most with our clients, this one is is one that we hear not too infrequently. We're we're in front of a client and they'll say something like. I heard someone we should buy this stock or Bitcoin or it's the new hot Mirror. trend. What's what's going? I heard this from you know my neighbor. He made a fortune on whatever it is. Or Kramer. Anyone who watches Mad Money, Kramer suggested this is a great stock. Paul, should we buy one of those? Yeah. And AI is the big the big new trend right now where everyone's saying that every, everyone's going to get rich from AI. It's going to change the world. So on and so forth. Um, 
Now, you can get into trouble with that. Um, there's been a lot of money lost just blindly betting on the next oh, supposed uh, big thing. Um, like a couple years ago, Paul, marijuana stocks were the big thing. Huge. Um, it was it was being legalized throughout the states, legalized in Canada. Everyone said, oh, there's going to be so much money made from this. And there was a big... It didn't quite work out that way, did it? <laughs> no. <laughs> marijuana stocks are down quite a bit. Uh, since yeah. that happened, um, and that's you know we 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 both do a lot of reading on this. New industries are inherently unpredictable. You don't know a yeah. like which companies are going to emerge to become the profit leaders, or even if the industry will be a, a profitable industry. Um, like I I've done a lot of reading on the car industry, Paul, and in 1908 in the states there were 253 car companies. Now, only, I know, right? Now, fast forward to today, only three of them still exist. So imagine in 1908, trying to pick which were the three car companies out of the 253 that would still survive. That could do really well on. Yeah, no, absolutely. By the way, I give our clients a warning. What I've been seeing lately is advertisement for AI investment strategies. Uh, and you see this on the web and closer media where you Oh, they have one one of them claimed that the average account earner earned $33,000 in their first month. And this is supposedly backed up by celebrities and Elon Musk. And they have all sorts of wonderful glowing reviews under their promotion. However, a quick Google search for the same company reveals 207 reviews, virtually all one star saying things like, these guys are crooks, they're scams, don't put your money here and so forth. So again, it's easy. People get greedy. They want to they get rich quick. But who was it who said the best way to get rich quickly is slowly? And there's huge, huge truth in that. Yeah. Why don't we go into number seven there, William? Um, and this talks about something we talked about before, and that's clients. How many clients have come to us and said this? Actually, not that many. Our clients are pretty good. Well, why don't we take advantage of the ups and downs? I don't know. The market's getting soft, you know, unemployment here. Maybe we should take money off the table, then put it in back in when prices go down. Um, good luck doing that successfully <laughs> because it's no one, there's no study that you and I have ever seen where except on occasional instances where people get lucky. The great majority of cases that does not work and there's reasons behind that yeah either. it's a very appealing strategy and again i can see why it would be tempting um like you said a client might say market's very high right now let's cash out take some earnings and buy back in when the market drops buy it by the dip um now pwl capital did a great study looking at this and they dug under the hood and they saw that buying the dip usually does not work as a strategy. Um, I can't get into all the details today. It's very, there's a lot of details. Um, I'd encourage everyone to go read the full th the report if they're interested. But basically they looked at 23 different developed markets throughout the world, Canada, the US, so on and so forth, or just a world index as a whole. And they looked at the difference between waiting for a 10% drop in the market and a 20% drop in the market when you reinvest your cash 
And they found that just a lump sum investing actually outperforms buying the dip in both cases the majority of the time. So again, what they found was buying the dip, it sounds good, but in practice, it usually does not work out well. And, and I, I could I, I just have to say something here, Rob. Excuse me. And the reason is emotional. Look, if if you're concerned when markets are high or you hear something on the news. When you want to put that money back in, when the markets drop 20% or 25%, you know what? The media is full of completely negative headlines predicting more worse is going to come. You are not going to put your money in when the market is low. You're not going to find the bottom. It's not going to happen. You're going to end up doing and statistics that shows this. In 2020, just in January 2020, just before COVID, there were record inflows into equity markets, record. And sure enough, 10 months later in October, when markets are, 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 decline, are going up, uh, there's record outflows. This happens again and again and again. It's easy to see, they're just numbers. It doesn't happen. Uh, we don't, people do not make decisions based on linear charts. We make decisions for the most part on emotions and we're all guilty of it. So that's why it won't work. Ask me the simple way. Okay, so now the next big question uh, we get from clients oh, is yeah. on CPP and OAS, essentially asking when, when should we start it? When? Because with, with o, o, OAS, old age security, you can take it as early as 65, but you can defer it uh, up to age 70 if you'd like. Yeah. Or at CPP, you can take it as early as 60 and again, defer it up to as late as age 70. And this is a very important question that I think not a lot of people fully understand because according no. to the actual government stats, 61% um, of all new CPP pensioners were started by people under the age of 65 and only 7% only 7% actually began their CPP after the age of 65. So most people actually aren't deferring uh, CPP, which if you dig into the numbers, they're probably leaving some money on the table here. Of course, you get a lot more. If you wait to age 70 from 65, you get 42% more money, plus whatever inflation has, in, has been incurred over the previous five years. That's a lot. That's a base. Yeah, fully indexed for the rest of your life. With old age security, it's 36% more. And again, with old age security, you also want to consider clawbacks. Should I wait? And that's that's where the planning comes in. Should we should we wait to get the old age security because it'll just all get clawed back? Now, we had one client uh, some time ago um, who went at age 65, was still working, earning six figures. She took her old age security. I says, why did you do this? You're losing it all. Why didn't you call? <laughs> anyway, uh, these are the things that happen. Again, you want to sit down with your advisor. Everyone is unique and different. Their cash flow, how much money has coming in, their marginal tax bracket and so forth, and their need. Because yeah. one of the things, one of the things, if you need the money at age 65, well, it may be better to wait to 70, but if you need it, you need it you have to take it. So again, and also the other thing is longevity. Again, if you have longevity in your family, chances are you should wait. If you don't have longevity in your family, probably a better idea to take these things early. Yeah, I looked at some numbers, Paul, for this. 
And essentially, if you compare versus taking a CPP at age 60 versus age 65, you'd have to live past age 73 to get that benefit of deferring to age 65. And then comparing taking it at age 70 versus age 65, you'd have to live past age 81 to realize that benefit of deferring uh, to 70. So again, longevity is the main thing to take into account. um, And as well, do, do you need the money? Yeah. Okay. Number nine of the 10 things we talk to our clients most about, and this is kind of a simple topic, but not a simple topic. Uh, Education costs are rising for your children and your grandchildren. Hey, how do these RESPs work? Why should we bother with them? Um, And again, education costs today, if you send someone away to university um, for a year, everything all in close to a hundred grand. I think I paid more that for you, William, 10 years ago. So <laughs> these are the expenses, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. And of course it depends on what, you, what you want to do. You know, some people, some families might say, well, I want my, I'll help the kids out somewhat and let them worry about the rest of themselves. Again, every family is different. There's no right or wrong answer here. So here's how an RESP works high level. Um, there's a lifetime contribution limit of $50,000 that can be contributed to it. And you get a, up to a maximum of $7,200 in government grants um, and a maximum of $5,000 per year uh, in grants. So that, that's something you wanna take advantage of because it's free money from the government. And this is another aspect of RESPs, Paul, that we often find confused clients is how, how do I actually get money yeah. out of it? Um, yeah. So it what can, can be, I get money for? Yeah. It can be withdrawn just for any educational purposes. So all you knew, like when we're processing RESP withdrawals, we just ask for a proof of enrollment, uh, which is very uh, readily available from whatever institution uh, your kid's attending. And then we we look at the most tax efficient way to withdraw it. We typically withdraw um, any government grants first um, mm-hmm. because if they if they aren't used, they actually have to be repaid to the government. Um, so we always withdraw the grants first, um, and then we move on to investment growth and returning original contributions as well. Yeah, and- just to let people know how flexible this is. For example, it's fine to pay for your transportation costs. For, to get your child tuned from university, that can include buying them a car. Yeah. Now, if you're going to buy them a Bentley, I'm not quite sure, you know, whether that's going to work out well. Again, there, we have never seen an instance where, uh, I, I don't recall ever, where, where the government has said, uh, you know, show us what you spent this money on. Uh, mm. I, it's very, very liberal. So almost anything that is directly related to sending the child or grandchild to university or, or post-secondary education is going to qualify. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's move on to the, the last one, Paul. Oh, this is a fun thing. How many of you out there have thought, you know what? I want to save on probate fees. I'm going to put the house or this piece of real estate or the portfolio jointly and name with my child or grandchild or whatever. Now, seems like an easy solution. However, most people aren't aware of some of the problems that can occur. By the way, they can be significant. For example, we it's not uncommon. Uh, just I think about a month ago, a client says, oh, we're thinking of putting my mother's personal residence jointly in my name and her. So we save probate fees. 
Well, that'll save probate fees. However, it will mean that likely half of the future capital gains, if, assuming there is capital gains, will be taxable. And that will likely be a lot more than what you save on probate fees. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, the other thing you want to be aware is if you put something jointly, and, and it could be anything, it could be a portfolio, it could be a piece of real estate, principal residence, investment property, whatever. All of a sudden now, there may be an issue, as we mentioned, about losing the personal exemption on the personal residence. Now you might lose control. Now, can you imagine you own a piece of property your whole life and you put even uh, uh, your child or grandchild, you put them for 1%. You know what? You can't sell the property without their approval. They have to sign on the bottom line. And if they don't do it, not much you can do about it, even though you owe 99%. These things can happen and have happened. Also, there can be a problem with equalization of the estates. Okay, you put a, pro a portfolio in, you have several children, you put a portfolio jointly with one child. You pass away, that money goes to that child. Unless it's very clear the intent and this has to be well documented in wills and so forth, that it's not the intent to give that money to the, the child that owned it jointly. Now, all of a sudden, the rest of the children get less money on a pro rata basis. And boy, that could result in your kids never talking to each other for the rest of the life. Believe me, these things happen. So uh, again, even if you're putting a portfolio um jointly with a child, you you want to make sure that you do a declaration that states that this is purely for estate purposes to avoid realizing capital gains or realizing capital gains on any unrealized gains that could be triggered on that, on that uh, change of ownership. So there's a number of issues that you have to deal with here. By the way, one way to get around that, well, is just use segregated funds given out by insurance companies where you, you buy an investment, and you keep it in your own name and you have complete control of it, but you can name a beneficiary. And I'm referring to non-registered. You can name a beneficiary. You can't do that on a non-segregated fund. Now, by the way, just so you're aware, there is another way to deal with um, uh, joint ownership, and that's by using segregated funds issued by insurance companies. Now, the reason you can do this with a portfolio, by the way, this is only for non-registered portfolio, is that you can designate a beneficiary. So in other words, if you want money to go to a specific daughter or granddaughter or son, whatever, you can name them as beneficiary. The money gets transferred to them upon your death within literally a couple of weeks and no probate fees. Uh, very quick, very efficient. It's another option for you. So that is it for the 10 conversations we have most with our clients. We're going to do a quick summary. Uh, item number one, the question that we asked or get asked the most is, do I have enough to retire or do I have enough to accomplish my financial goals? Number two, should I buy real estate or invest? Number three, why did my account go down in the last six months? Number four, the lure of the higher rate GIC. Should you buy it or when you should buy it, when you shouldn't buy it? Number five, should I invest in an RRSP or a TFSA? Number six, I heard this hot new stock or, or uh, item. Should I buy it? We talked about that. 
Next one is um, number seven, market timing, the many pitfalls of market timing. Number eight, when to take, can a pension plan and old age security? Number nine, the ins and outs of RESPs. And number 10, saving probate fees by using joint tenancy, the ups and downs of doing that. Hey, it's been a great program. Next podcast in another two weeks, the 10 conversations we have most with those looking to work with us, prospects, 10 very different conversations. I think you'll find that really interesting. By the way, after that, we're going to be talking about year-end text, uh, text planning strategies that will be two weeks after that in early November. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Paul. Uh, please like, share, and subscribe to our show. Yes. Uh, for even more valuable insights, you can visit both of our blogs on westsenwell.com. Uh, you can connect with both of us on LinkedIn, or you could give me a follow on Twitter, or uh, apparently it's called X now, whatever you want to call it, you can follow me there. Sure. And you can find the, the links uh, to all our blogs and social pages in the, the show notes. So thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Paul. And, uh, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. We'll see you all soon. Bye-bye now. This podcast was brought to you by West End Wealth Planning, an award-winning wealth planning practice catering to small and medium-sized business owners and to those looking to create a worry-free retirement for themselves and their families. To learn more, go to westendwealth.com. Don't forget to rate this podcast and subscribe to Retirement Straight Talk with Paul and William by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.